Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. If you have a Bible, open it to James chapter 2. James chapter 2 is where we left off last week. If you're with us for the first time today, we're working through this New Testament letter written by James. And that's why, by the way, it's called James, if you hadn't figured that out. It's written by the half-brother of Jesus, and it's our custom here to just work through primarily books of the Bible. And so we are starting chapter 2 today. As you're finding that, let me, let me mention to you uh, and encourage you to come to, we're going to start a new round, a new semester of our midweek teaching uh, a little bit earlier than usual. We're going to start actually in two Wednesdays from now, January 22nd, and we're going to look at what the Bible says about difficult topics, and we've, we've picked out six topics, what the Bible says about miracles. In particular, should we pray for things like for God to raise the dead? Uh, next week, we're going to look at women in ministry. Should women preach or be pastors? The following week, baptism. Who should be baptized and at what age? Then politics. I don't know if you knew that's a thing, actually. We're, we're talking about that in our country a lot. How should Christians engage and vote? Then marijuana. Is it okay to use it if it's legalized? And then we're capping it off with homosexuality and gender. Can a person be gay, transgender, and a Christian? So we thought we'd start off light at the beginning of the year. <laughs> a couple easy to think about topics, but I uh, hope you'll come to that. We, we meet on Wednesday nights here. We have dinner at 545, and then we come into the sanctuary at 630 for teaching, so I uh, hope that will be encouraging. I'll be teaching on each of those, those topics and hopefully equipping us as a church to think biblically about some, some difficult topics that are very controversial in our, our culture. What do we really need? What's our greatest need? Tyler was praying for Haiti and Puerto Rico, and in a couple months I'm going to be visiting our friends again in India, and then this summer in Uganda. Thinking about Christians and churches that I know around the world, and the difference between Christians that seem to be thriving and churches that seem to be thriving and those that don't, it's not based on whether or not you have a a good building or a parking lot with new lines on it. Thank, Thank the Lord for that, by the way. It's not really based on how much you have materially. It's whether or not we, as individuals or as churches, commit ourselves to seeing and believing and clinging to God's word. And, and knowing and believing and trusting and fastening our lives to the good news that the word, the God that the word tells us about. Psalm 1 gives us this picture. It says that blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water. Its leaf never withers. It bears fruit in its season. In all that he does, he prospers. 
That's the difference, that we would be people that look at God's word and see it. And this morning, we come to James 2, and I want us to see more than just tips or suggestions or principles to live by. And certainly the Bible is full of that. And we come to the Bible and we find those things. But this morning in James 2, it, it's one of those passages, verses 1 through 13, that sketches out a way of living together that God is calling his people to pursue. So let's get into it. Let me pray, and then we're going to work our way through this text. And we'll just read it as, as we unfold the truths that I see in it. Here's the flow. I, I see in this text a kind of outline, a three-part outline. I see a command, I see an example, and then three reasons to obey that command. A command, an example, and three reasons to obey that command. Let me pray and ask the Lord to help us, and we'll work our way through it. Lord, Jesus said in his prayer in John 17 that your word is truth. And he prayed that you would sanctify us by your truth. So we pray that you'd do that now. Make us more like you. Make us more like Christ, those that are believers in this room. And for my friends that are here that don't yet know you, and certainly there are some in this room, Lord, I pray that you, by your sovereign, good, free, merciful grace, would take out their dead heart, their heart of stone, and give them a new heart so that they might believe and trust in Jesus and treasure him above all things. Help us, Lord, now as we look at your word. May we meditate on it. May we see the truth in it and be satisfied. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1, James writes this. And remember the, the whole theme of James, I think, is that he's wanting to cultivate in his listeners genuine faith. If we could sum up James in, in one or two sentences, it would be that this saving faith, that this doctrine that we believe must be lived out. And so if you say you believe in Jesus, but there's nothing in your life that would, that would be a kind of evidence of your faith, then your faith, he says, is dead and it's of, of no use. And so he's talking about what obedience looks like in the Christian life. And here in verse 1 of chapter 2, he draws his, his sights, his attention to how we treat one another. Verse 1, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So right here in verse 1, I think we see very simply the command. And here the command is clearly stated. He says, show no partiality. That's the command. Show no partiality. In other words, he's saying that, that faith, this faith of being a Christian, trusting in Jesus, and favoritism are incompatible. You can't hold on, and he gives us this picture of holding on to the faith in the Lord Jesus. He's saying you can't hold on to Christ with one hand and give a stiff arm to certain types of people with the other. And who are those types of people? Well, he's going to give us an example next. So the first command in verse 1 is show no partiality. That's part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And he gives an example and this example is a rich man and a poor man that come to church, and he describes it in verses two through four. So let me read that. He says, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there 
or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So he gives us this example. There's these two men that are on the opposite ends of the social spectrum. The rich man, he says, has a gold ring, which in in our context may not be that big of a deal, but in first century biblical times in Palestine, to to wear a gold ring would have been a, a mark of a person with great influence and great means. And the way the, the church in this setting is treating this man is they're giving him a position of honor simply because of who he seems to be, his, his social status or his wealth. And so they're giving him this honor because of that. And then in contrast with this poor man, and he, he describes him as a, as a poor man in shabby clothes. Again, that's a word that may not jump out to us, but... But in the context of what James is saying here, it's the lowest of the low. It's this man that would be like a a homeless person that we would all instantly know. We're not talking about, this guy isn't just, you know, shopping at Kohl's. He's coming in with (laughs) terrible, as opposed to, I I was just trying to make a point about, you know, anyway. No, I shop at Kohl's, but every now and again... (laughs) Like a button will be off or something. I mean, there's a reason why it's discounted. Y'all know that, right? But he's not just saying, oh, this guy isn't, isn't fashionable. He's, he's shabby. He's homeless. He's, his, his, his clothes are tattered. And you look at him and you instantly classify him and you relegate him to a, a place of shame and dishonor. And what does James saying we've done when we do that, or the church that he's talking to here. He says that you've made, and this is an important phrase, you've made distinctions among yourselves, and you've become judges with evil thoughts. James says that when we make distinctions, what's happening in our minds is that we categorize people. In a sense, we sort of play sovereign over them. We, we issue an edict on who they are and what their value is. And really, what's reigning in our hearts at that moment is, is we are saying to that person, I don't think that you really can offer me anything of value. And so you, you get away from me, but you seem to be somebody that can help me, so you come close to me. Let me honor you. And this is a problem with mankind. It's a problem with people. It's a problem with this world. It's a problem with me. It's a problem with us. We are prone to be bloodthirsty for our own glory. And people often are the means by which we gather our own glory. If they can help us, We love them and prefer them. If they can't, they can't add any benefit to our lives and help us climb whatever social ladder we want to climb, we we so easily toss them aside. And in this way, when a person does this, when a church does this, we're really no better than a a despot or a tyrant that that just subjugates people for his own purposes. our, our, Our mode may be a little bit more subtle, but really, We're just like that tyrant that is just using people for our own glory. We we when we act like this, when we make this distinction, what makes it so evil is that we are using people, God's creation, those made in God's image, for our own glory, and we become glory thieves. 
So we relegate those whom God has made in his image and we steal glory from God because ultimately, even if we're not aware of it, in that moment, it's all about us. About us feeling good about ourselves because we're with these people and not with these people. And that's the ethic of this world, this culture that we live in. Get ahead. Surround yourself with people who can help you. Build your profile. Avoid and move quickly past anyone who slows you down. Personal advancement is the goal. Helpful people are the means to get there. And unhelpful people are obstacles along your life's journey. Now don't misunderstand me, friends. God certainly puts people of influence in our lives to bless and to open doors for us. And that's a blessing. But let's be aware that we are very prone to subtly make using people for our means the default mode of our relationships. So how does this, how does this apply to us before we, we look at these three reasons why we should obey this command? Just a few thoughts on how this applies. But clearly, clearly this applies to us on a much broader and deeper level than just economic status or rich and poor. An obvious one is, is just the, the distinctions racially that we all by nature in our minds are prone to make. We might be prone to think less of people that are of a diff- different ethnicity or a different background or from a different part of the world. That is a distinction that James here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, calls evil. And I think in this time in our nation's history, we might be, and I did not live in the 60s. I was born in the early 70s. And at least in my lifetime, this has been the most racially, politically divided time that we've lived in. And I think that we need to be aware of this as we read this text, and we need to think about rich and poor. Certainly that's an an, an application. But even more than that, we want to think about other ways that we're prone to divide racially, maybe even politically. And the world... The world is crying out and demanding our allegiance to one side or the other. We need to be aware of that. We need to realize that when we make distinctions along lines like this, we are evil in our hearts. And certainly it's not just racial divisions or economic divisions. It's even more subtle than that, really. It's really even more subtle than that because there's a person in this room who may be from, you might be white, and you maybe have more in common with a black person that is kind of, kind of in your sphere. Maybe you grew up doing the same things, same school, played the same sports. Maybe you play a similar instrument or you're majoring in the same. You might have way more in common than somebody even in your own ethnic sort of demographic that is just sort of different or socially awkward or strange. And we just kind of group ourselves. We just stay away from awkward people. We stay away from difficult people. And this, this message is pushing on us to not show partiality for the church of Jesus Christ to be a place for all types of people, for whomsoever the Lord might call. As Tyler read from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the lowly, the poor, everybody, whosoever would come. And that the church would be a place where all find welcome and rest and peace and family and love and grace. So three reasons then, three reasons. And that's what 
verse 5 through the end of this section, verse 13, gives us three reasons that James roots his logic. Three reasons why we should obey his command not to show partiality. The first, he tells us in verse 5, the first is this, is that God has chosen the poor and lowly. If God has chosen them, we should love them as well. Maybe some of us are poor and lowly. Listen to verse 5. He says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? So remember, just the flow of James's logic here, he's saying, don't show partiality. And he gives us this example of a rich man and a poor man that walk in. And now here in verse 5, he gives us his first reason. Why shouldn't we show partiality? Well, the first reason is, is because he's saying God has chosen them. They're God's people. Friends, this is how God works. This is what God does. This is at the very heart of the gospel. God delights in loving those that the world overlooks, scorns, and hates. He chooses those that the world rejects. Jesus says in in his Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, that, that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And the poor in spirit here has obviously much more application than just those who are economically, financially poor. It's those who are weak and wounded, who are, are sick and sore, whose hearts are broken, People who, for whatever reason, are outcasts and seem to be unlovable by a world that bases their love on what you can do for me. James is telling us here that we should love people, all people, certainly those that are not like us, poor and lowly, because God has chosen them. And just as an aside, just as an aside, this makes me think that we should be very careful. And this is something that I think is particular, maybe, maybe it's like this in other cultures, but it's certainly the case in American Christianity. We should be careful about making too much fuss about celebrity or famous athlete Christians and conversions. As if those people are more important than everybody else. Oh, well, this person became a Christian, and they seem to say something relatively God-centered on their Instagram account. Oh, isn't this just amazing? Think of all that God can do because this celebrity seems to say something sort of religious. Or this athlete prayed to some sort of general God at the end of a game that he won. Friends, I'm, I'm not against those things. I don't mean to be a Scrooge. I'm just saying, be careful what we communicate when we say that as if God needs the platform of American celebrity. Amen. That's not the case. God delights in saving and loving and showering his affection on people that the world thinks nothing of. And notice, notice what James says about these people. He says they will be rich in faith, verse 5. People that have very little often have great faith. And I think part of the reason for this is because they haven't had as much opportunity to trust in the trinkets that wealth brings. He says they will be heirs of the kingdom. They will have on that day and for eternity all that really matters. And they will love him because they have not loved this world. Friends, how does this apply to us? Well, I think I mentioned it. This is just a picture of how salvation works. God 
God loves us because he loves us. He doesn't love us because we're talented, because we're smart, because we come from a certain background, because we have some gift that we can use for his mission. God loves people because he loves them and he delights in setting his affection on people who seem like unlikely candidates for grace. So don't be discouraged, dear friend. Don't be discouraged if you are poor or poor in spirit. And don't be fooled. Don't put your confidence in, in, in yourself. Good self-esteem that this world seems to hold up has led many people to hell. The goal of life is not that you would feel good about yourself. And I'm not saying that the Bible's against that. But this world's notion of self-esteem is a false, it's a self-worship. And by God's sovereign providence in your life, your life may have been and may still be a very real struggle. And things may be really, really hard. But take heart, dear friend. God loves the poor in spirit. God chooses the lowly. I'm not saying there's not, obviously, places in the Bible that exhort us to, to, to improve ourselves. I'm not saying that you need to remain stuck in that situation. I'm saying that God knew every one of your days before one of them came to be. God is sovereign. He is sovereign over every aspect of your life. And wherever you are right now, God's good hand of providence is in the middle of it to cause you to let go of this world and grab a hold of himself. And the people that are above you, you think socially, that you've been jealous of, stop idolizing them. Cling to Christ, not to materialism. That's one application certainly for us. God has chosen the poor, so we should be too. Maybe some of us in this room are poor in spirit and we should take heart. The second, the second reason he tells us in verses 6 and 7. Here's the second reason. He says you should... You should Love and not be partial against poor people. Why? Because these rich people that you're seeming to favor, they, they oppress you and they blaspheme Jesus. That's what he says in verse 6 and 7. Look at, look at those verses. But you have dishonored the poor man. And then he says, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? I think his point is a real practical one here. It seems, it, it seems like the context is, is that these rich people that would show up to, wor to, to worship in the churches that James is writing to, there must have been several situations where they just kind of showed up maybe for some social spectacle, and then they eventually were the same people that were you know, taking advantage of these middle class or poor people and you know, suing them, and maybe they were landlords or property owners. And, and James is saying, look, these people whose, whose affection and whose approval you are starving for are the same ones who are turning around and making your life miserable, dragging you off into court and blaspheming Jesus. Don't be, fe don't be fooled. They don't like you. They don't care about you, is what James is saying. And they don't care about Christ. How, how does this apply to us in our lives? Well, I, as I think about this, I think it just reminds me that people, people that we desperately want to like us, make terrible masters. People make terrible idols. We think we need people. We think we need their approval. We think we need their yes in our lives. But they can never truly deliver. A book that I'd recommend to you is a book by a, a Christian counselor up in Philadelphia. His name is Ed Welch. 
It's a, a wonderful book. It's called When People Are Big and God is Small. Just the title is, is, is encouraging and convicting. When people are big and God is small. And there was this line in the first chapter, I believe, that he wrote. He says, when our problem is, is that we need to need people less so that we can love them more. And I think as I read this text, I think about that, that what James is saying to me is that don't idolize people. Don't idolize the opinion of man. Don't worship what other people think of you because they don't really care about you anyway. So, so stop it. Look, Love people because God loves them and don't thirst and hunger and starve after what the world would say is success and people that can make you feel good about yourself. How does this apply to us? I'm just thinking about maybe a teenager in this room, a teenager that wishes you were in with the popular kids. Don't. Uh, I've been out of high school for a while now and one Thing that Facebook has taught me is that most of the popular kids in high school are knuckleheads now. And most of the nerds are really, really sharp people. <laughs> thank God. Listen, listen, teenager. Thank God if you're a nerd. <laughs> because you know why? And I'm, I know that came out funny, but I'm trying to be serious. Because God... It's hard on you now. But your, God is developing grit in your life. And if you will take God's sovereign providence in your life, and if you will see it for something bigger and more eternal and more beautiful than just your awkward struggle right now, oh, if you can see that, it can produce beautiful things in your life. It can wean you from this world and woo you to Christ. It can make you want Jesus and his approval and not this world's approval. It can cause you to have to overcome obstacles that all of your popular friends or those that aren't your friends don't have to overcome. And when they encounter real things when they're 30 and 40, they won't know which way's up. But you've spent the last couple decades grinding it out, persevering, trusting in Jesus because he's your only hope. Oh, thank God for that providence in your life. Thank God for that providence in your life. And don't lust after the affection of some kid who doesn't know which way's up. And by the way, that, that applies to all of us, man. We're, oh, he's speaking to the teenagers now. That's really great. No. We're all, we're all like this, aren't we? Jesus... Jesus loves, Jesus loves nerds. Jesus loves awkward people. Jesus loves people who, who, who are insecure. Jesus loves anxious people. Jesus loves people who are racked with fear of man. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves people who just wonder whether anybody loves them. And the answer, the biblical answer to that is yes. God loves those type of people. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And that hard providence in your life may be the means by which God is making you humble. And a thousand years from now, you'll look back on that as the kindness of God in your life. And the third and final reason 
that James says we should obey this command as he says here in verses 8 through 13. He says, he says, love and mercy rule in God's kingdom. There's a new ethic. There's a new way. Love and mercy. Now, in this third reason, before I read verses 8 through 13, we, we, need to, we need to step back a little bit and get a sense of what James is saying because his reasoning on the surface might seem a little difficult for us to kind of grab a hold of. It's not as easy to see as the more straightforward points that we read in verses 5 and 6 and 7. But he's, he's going to go back, he's going to use the law, the Old Testament law, as a kind of ideal for this type of countercultural community that God is crafting in his people. And he's saying that if you are calling yourself a Christian and you have been made a citizen of this new kingdom and this new family called God's people, then there's this new way, there's this new ethic, and you are to live according to this ethic that God's law, God's God's rule, God's word points us to. And so he's in a sense zooming out and he's making it bigger than just these individual applications. He's saying that there's this kingdom and there's this ethic, there's this way of living of the kingdom. And so he says in verse 8 and 9, he says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So what he's saying here is he's, he's, he's in a sense, he's summarizing, he's connecting the whole of the Old Testament law to what Jesus says about it in the New Testament. So the law in the Old Testament, let me just kind of step back before we dig into the rest of these verses and, and conclude this, this point and this message to give us a kind of picture to piece in our minds together what, what James is saying. And to understand what he's saying, I think it would be helpful for us to understand how the Old Testament works in the life of a New Testament Christian. What relevance does the Old Testament, in particular, all of these laws, these rules and regulations that God gives his people Israel in the Old Testament, what relevance do they have in the life of the New Testament Christian? Because James is in the New Testament. Well, here, here's how, let me just summarize it for you. God formed a people, a nation, Israel, and he wanted to make these people distinct from the other nations of the earth. And he wanted to make them distinct, not because he wants to separate his people into some sort of bunker, you know, in some sort of separatism sort of way, but he wants to make his people distinct and holy so that they will be a witness, so that their way of life will be a kind of evangelistic aroma to the other nations. Even before he gave the law, even before he created Israel as a nation, he says that's his purpose in making Israel. When he speaks to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, at the beginning of Genesis 12, he calls this man Abraham out of the wilderness even before there was an Israel. And he says, Abraham, I'm going to make a nation, a family through you, and I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing to all the nations. Well, this family that comes from Abraham becomes the nation of Israel. And later on in the history of the life of the nation of Israel, God gives this leader Moses, and he gives Moses this law. And this law was filled with over 600 prescriptions, regulations, rules, ordinances that were teaching the people how they were to live. 
Now, some of these laws were kind of the big ten, these moral laws. Don't, don't kill and don't, 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 don't blaspheme the Lord. Don't, don't make idols for yourself. Don't steal. Don't take another man's wife. These are huge moral things that are, that are clearly applicable for all time. Some of these laws were just governing laws on how you were to live as a nation. And some of these laws were laws about how you should do sacrifice for, the, for atoning for the sins of the people. And that's what this Old Testament law is. It's a picture of how God's people were to be holy and distinct from the nations. But here's the thing about this Old Testament law. It was never intended to actually produce holiness and produce salvation. It was a kind of picture of the holiness of God, but it was also given as a kind of light to display the unholiness of the people. So in a sense, the Old Testament law is meant to display the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, and the need of man, the need of Israel for somebody to obey the law for them. That's what the Old Testament law is meant to do, to point us not into ourselves so that we would try our hardest to obey the laws and find our righteousness in ourselves, but to cause us to finally throw up our arms and say, we can't ever be holy on our own. We need someone to be holy for us. And who is that someone that this law is pointing to as a shadow? We see in reality it's Jesus who will come. And Jesus is the one true and only law-abiding man that lives a perfect life and then lays down that perfect life on the cross and absorbs the punishment, even though he never broke any laws, he absorbs the punishment for our law breaking and he satisfies the requirements of the law. And now Jesus rises again in victory over sin, death, and the grave. And this is the glorious good news of the gospel. When God saves a person, he takes their old dead heart that is convicted because of their disobedience to God's holiness, which is the law. He gives them a new heart. And with that new heart comes the righteousness that Jesus has won through his perfect life. And now, here's what the Bible does. In the Old Testament, the law is written on tablets of stone. It's this kind of shadow. But now in the New Testament, specifically in places like Romans 8, it says that God's law is now the law of the Spirit written on our hearts. And Jesus has fulfilled all of these external, he's fulfilled all of these, these written laws it's not that they're done away with, but now we are no longer bound by them, but we are now bound by this law, this law of the new life, the law of the Spirit, Romans 8 calls us, this law that is now written on our hearts. We are now bound and enabled to follow God and glorify Him and be a people that are set apart so that our lives, our lives together would would be a display of his goodness to the people that look at, us, look at us around us. And that's what's going on in James. He's saying, there's this new law, and you should love your neighbor. So he's not really pointing to the Old Testament per se. He's pointing to the law fulfilled in Christ, who says, love your neighbor as yourself. And then in verse 10, he says, for whoever keeps the whole law, but fails in one point, has become guilty all of, of all of it. 
For he who said, verse 11, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So James is pointing to a principle that the Old Testament law clearly states and is picked up in the New is we can't just say that, oh, I'm doing okay in this one area, but, you know, this area, forget about this. You, you, have, to, you have to obey all of God's commands. That's what it means. We, we have to give all of our heart to God. He's just saying, he's saying, oh, well, you're, 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 you're congratulating yourself because you're not committing adultery, but you're murdering a guy. And he says, what, what, kind of, what kind of obedience is that? You're a lawbreaker. And so what James is calling us is we can't just say, well, you know, I, I give to the church. I sing on the worship team. Um, I teach in children's ministry. Uh, if anything is going to garner you some favor with God, that certainly would be it. You know, I, I attend regularly. And I do all these things. But then James is saying, yeah, but you, but you show partiality. You, you treat certain people, you overlook them. And he's saying, that, what good is that? God has given you this new heart so that every area of your life, certainly not in perfection, but would be aimed in obedience to God. That's the point that he's making here. And he's saying that there's this new ethic, there's this new law written on our hearts that doesn't leave any room for us just saying, oh, well, that's not important. Give all of your heart to God is essentially what James is saying. And part of your giving your heart to God is loving people that God loves for his glory. So he says in verse 12, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. What does that mean? I mean, Brad, didn't you just say that we're no longer judged by the law because Jesus has fulfilled it for us? Yeah, but now there's this new law, the law of the Spirit, that's written on our hearts, which is the promise of the new covenant Christian. And how does this law of liberty judge us? Well, it spurs us on. It proves us. It reveals our hearts. And it it encourages it. It really displays whether or not we're truly following the Lord with our lives. It's, it's the whole message of James is that, 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 that whether or not we're obedient to what the Bible says is a kind of proving of our lives. And notice how he describes this law. It's not a law of condemnation. It's a law of liberty. So, so dying to myself and desiring to follow God in all my ways is actually where liberty rests. It's a law of liberty. And that's, I think, what Jesus is saying. It's a principle that Jesus is getting at when he speaks of this abundant life. You know, John 10.10 is one of the favorite verses that many of us quote. Some of you could say it with me. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and life more abundantly. What does that mean? We quote it, but what does that mean? It doesn't just mean that we would have this kind of internal sense of peace. Certainly that's part of it. But this abundant life that Jesus is calling us to is is this obedient life that James is exhorting us in. It's this life where we're we're not giving ourselves a pass for the, oh, I can do this, but, you know, I treat these people poorly. He's saying, no, pursue all of this and go after all that God calls us to through this law of liberty. And he concludes with verse 13, for judgment, I love this, this verse, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. He concludes with a, a profound summary. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. 
And what James is saying here is that really the opposite is true. Those who show no mercy, those who treat people partially, will be given no mercy. But here's the good news. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's a kind of summary of the gospel in itself. This is the way that Christians should live towards other people. We shouldn't make distinctions towards one another. We shouldn't judge one another in this way that we say, oh, you're of no value to me, and so forget about you. These people can help me, so let me bring myself close to them. That's not the way Christians should live towards others. Why? Because this is the way God has treated us. Mercy has triumphed over judgment in our lives in Christ. Listen to Colossians 2. We conclude with this. Colossians 2, which is a a, a passage that displays this truth so clearly. Paul's writing to the church and he says, explaining what it means to be a recipient of mercy, explaining what it means to be a Christian. He says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. That's a biblical way of saying that you were dead. You were not saved. You were not trusting in Christ. You may have thought you were, but your heart was dead. You were still an idolater. You were trapped. You were enslaved by your old way of life. You couldn't do anything to save yourself. You were dead in your sins. And by the way, even though those words sound drastic, that's a description of every human being before God awakens them. Just because you're a good middle-class American and a relatively moral person compared to other people, that verse applies to you as well if you're not trusting in Christ. We are all, by nature, dead in our sins and the uncircumcision of our flesh. And how, how did God make you go from dead to alive? It says there, God made alive. He made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. So what happened on the cross? The law and our law breaking, the distinctions that we make between people, the way we fail God daily deserves God's judgment. That's what the law cries out. The law cries out for blood and judgment and punishment, and we deserve it. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus lays down his life to satisfy that judgment for us, and he nails the requirements of the law to the cross. That's what happened when Jesus was nailed to the cross. He nailed himself to the cross and judgment was poured out on Jesus. And now the legal demands of the law are satisfied. And on the cross, mercy triumphs over judgment. That's the gospel. God could have left us in our sins. He could have sent us away from him for eternity. He could have left us in judgment, but he sent his son to absorb the judgment for us. And instead of judgment and wrath, he gives us mercy. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And he disarmed the rulers and authorities. I think that's a reference to the demonic forces of wickedness that are trying to join in the chorus of our condemnation that God silences. And it says he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Mercy triumphs over judgment. None of us deserve God's grace. None of us are worthy to draw near to God. 
But the good news of the gospel is while we deserve judgment, those of us who have faith in Jesus, mercy triumphs over judgment. And what James is saying is that's the world, that's the kingdom, that's the way of life with the Father. So if that's the way God treated you, dear one, oh, what a privilege it is to treat others like this, where we're just, we're just, we're just mercy dispensers. We're just people that give mercy to people that are weak and wounded and sick and sore. This is the life that James is calling us to. Let's pray. Lord, our good, our good intentions are not enough. We need you and we need your spirit in us to help us live this out. Because I know I'm prone to see truth in the Bible like this and and it's easy for me to see truth, but it's much harder for me to actually apply it in my life. I'm forgetful. Pretty soon the busyness of Monday morning comes. And I'm off to my default mode of making distinctions of people. Acting just like those that James is critiquing here. So Lord, would you do significant and holy and divine and lasting things in my heart. I confess how quick my tongue is to categorize people, to cast them off. I confess how easy it is for me in my mind to put people in certain categories, difficult, not difficult, helpful, unhelpful, ornery, sweet, challenging, not challenging. Lord, I'm not saying you don't give us wisdom, but I do confess that sometimes you, I use the wisdom that you've given me for my selfish and idolatrous means. Forgive me for that, Lord. And if that applies to any of my friends in this room, forgive them as well. Would you help this church just swim against the tide? To be people who fight to show no partiality. To love the lowly because you love them. Because mercy triumphs over judgment. And Lord, certainly this room is full of people who might in some way or another feel lowly themselves. And they may wonder whether or not people in this church love them or notice them. They may even be wondering whether or not you could love them. Lord, cut through the lies of this world. Cut through the lies of hell itself. And open up their ears so that they would hear, yes, God loves whom he loves because he loves them and nothing else. No one in this room, no one in this room is outside of your grace. No one is too lowly. No one's spiritual clothes are too shabby to be loved by the God who delights 
in having his mercy triumph over his judgment. Oh, Lord, burn that into somebody's heart today. Burn it into their heart. And change their course of their life because they see, they meditate, they behold that God loves them. And when you know that God loves you, Lord, we can be like that tree that's planted by a stream of water. This leaf does not wither. It bears fruit because you love us and that's all we really need. Help us with these things, Lord, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.